Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Charles Malik, the Lebanese diplomat and one of the drafters of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, was intimately involved in the crises of his own day, from the challenge of international communism to the internal challenges and problems of the West itself. For Malik, all of our challenges take the form of crises which, at their deepest levels, reflect Christ's judgment. His profoundly theological vision of global crisis, one in which crises are ongoing in the lives of individual believers, as well as the world at large, springs from his own lifelong Orthodox faith. In a world consumed by crises from the global COVID-19 pandemic to ongoing civil unrest in the United States, Malik's insights are timelier than ever for believers trying to navigate through a turbulent world. Today, Acton's Dan Huger talks with Dylan Pollan, research fellow and managing editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality at the Acton Institute, about Malik's life and his book, Christ and Crisis, in which he presents his Christ-centered interpretive framework for grappling with a rapidly changing world. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of ActonLine on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. ActonLine is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Today, I am joined by Dylan Palman, Research Fellow and Managing Editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality at the Acton Institute. Dylan is also the author of the excellent book, Foundations of a Free and Virtuous Society, and editor of the Orthodox Christian Social Thought Series. Today, we'll be discussing one of the books in that series, Christ in Crisis. Dylan, welcome to Acton Line, and thank you for being with us. Thank you, Dan. So Charles Malik loomed quite large uh, on the international stage and in his native Lebanon, is largely unknown to many in the United States today. Just just who was Charles Malik? So Malik was a Lebanese diplomat uh, who uh, was one of the original drafters of the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which uh, I believe last year was the 70th anniversary of. Um, he was one of the signers of the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. He was later president of the UN General Assembly in 1958. Uh, he was an academic as well, and he studied uh, some hard sciences, but also uh, has got his PhD in philosophy, studying under Alfred North Whitehead and um, Martin Heidegger. Um, he was actually in Germany in the 30s, studying under Heidegger, and had to flee, uh, being very much not German, uh, and the the atmosphere and culture becoming very hostile, uh, of course. Um, and he just lived a, a remarkable life. Um, he, so he's this, this um, figure who had all the trainings of an academic uh, and all the aspirations as well. And he did teach uh, for many years uh, at various um, universities, Harvard, American University in Lebanon and Washington, D.C., um, but he was pulled into politics and into 
um, international politics in particular, also Lebanese uh, politics, um, and kind of, you know, despite his aspirations to be more of a, a professor and academic, always being pulled into the crises of the world. Um, and that was formative for him, but he was also formative on it in, in some amazing ways. Uh, so he's somebody with a, this accomplished, uh, amazing life uh, that uh, is still, I think, uh, probably um, not as well known as he should be. Yeah. And he is sort of uniquely um, positioned in Lebanon. Like Lebanon has a very diverse religious community. And, in, and even within Lebanon's Christian community, which is very diverse, and, and Malik yes. is, is, is a Greek Orthodox member of that community. Correct. Yeah, I know he had um, several family members who were Maronite Catholics, and I, you know, I am no expert on Lebanese politics, uh, so I, I, can't, I can't speak very expertly um, on, on that situation. But I know, you know, there, there was a civil war in the 70s uh, in, in Lebanon, very messy, um, and— you know, I have—I I don't know entirely how he's view, viewed today, although certainly he, he founded the Department of Philosophy at the American University in Lebanon. Um, his son continues his work on human rights um, and, and uh, wrote a wonderful foreword to this book uh, as well, um, our new edition. And so it's something that he, he certainly knew there was demand uh, to put his father's work back in print, um, particularly in Lebanon, um, uh, as well as around the world. So he's somebody that I'm sure you go to Lebanon, ask people who is Charles Malik, you know, um, they will know, right? Uh, you ask somebody almost anywhere else in the world, or at least at least in the United States, where we should know better, um, and they'd have no idea. Yeah. But he had, he had quite a penetration during his life into religious communities in the United States. I know he, I know he, he worked mm -hmm. with uh, Bible societies. Yes. Um, he was a sought-after speaker published in, in places like the Christian Century. That's right. That's right. Most of the uh, chapters of this book, in fact, originated as lectures before uh, Protestant bodies, Episcopalians, Baptists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Methodists, um, and then he reworked them uh, into this book. So uh, he was Orthodox, uh, and he, he remained so all his life. Uh, uh, again, he, you know, in some ways, he had family members. He was part of um, certain political class that tended to be more Maronite Catholic is my understanding. Um, but but he still remained Orthodox. He was an altar boy as a kid. His son talks about this in the foreword. He he was an archon of the Ecumenical Patriarchate, um, uh, the Ecumenical Patriarchy. So he was at uh, the meeting in, in Istanbul, uh, or Constantinople, as we still say, uh, in, uh, between Paul VI and uh, Patriarch Athenagoras. Um, and so it's something that was very dear to him, uh, something very real to him, uh, he, and uh, something that I think it might not be easy for an outsider to notice, but as an Orthodox Christian myself, reading the book, I, I see the impact of that faith. Um, and at the same time, I see somebody who was very skilled at presenting his faith in a way that could speak to a diverse group of Christians. And again, that's, I think, born out of the context of these lectures. Um, and I think that's something that all American Orthodox Christians can relate to. You know, we are in no way the majority uh, here. That's fine. Um, but it's something that we all have neighbors and friends and family members who are Protestant or Catholic or, you know, neither. Um, and 
we're trying to navigate, well, what does it mean to be orthodox and relate to these other people and in some ways hopefully cooperate and get along with and work together with uh, these other people? And I think Malik uh, really demonstrated that with his life and, and his writings. Yeah, and and you had mentioned you know, that we had brought this back into print. Um, this is a book that had been out of print for many years um, and was reissued in this new edition. How did you discover the book? That's a great question. So it, it was originally published in 1962 um, by Erdmans. And uh, it's actually, I, I was thinking about this. It was, I rediscovered the book. So I came across uh, Malik in his work on the Universal Declaration. I think it was uh, probably in 2013, something like that. And and stuck out to me that, oh, he's Orthodox like me, right? You know, he's he did this, this, this work of public policy and peace and uh, and social thought that I'm trying to do in a very, very small way by comparison. Um, so there's something inspiring about him. Um, and so I wanted to look, I looked up, you know, well, did he write anything, right? And I came across this book and I realized I'd heard of it before. My my father uh, had, when he died, he had a library of over 3,000 books in his very small apartment. And I remember years before when I was uh, a student at Kuiper College here in town, a, a local uh, Bible college that uh, he would he would get books and get used books they were all used um, and and he studied theology when he was uh, you know in college as well and so we would talk all the time I'd go over there you know once a week and we'd stay up late and, you know I'd be there till midnight talking theology or whatever and I remember one time he told me about this book about this guy who had this very interesting understanding of crisis as judgment uh, and that like I remember that specific definition. Uh, and then I, I found this book on Amazon. I found, you know, uh, it was not a new copy at all. It was a used copy. I ordered it. I ordered it for our library. It's still in Acton's library. Uh, and read it. And, it. and it began right right away with his definition of crisis. And I said, oh, wait a minute. You know, I've heard of this book before. I've heard of this person before. Um, so actually, it was, it was a rediscovery, something that, that connected me uh, in a very small sense uh, with my dad. Um, and and something that, for me, was very timely. I, I mean, I can't, I don't want to get into too much personal detail, but there's something that I've always found uh, very important and that resonates strongly with me about the Christian ascetic and especially the Orthodox ascetic tradition uh, that while in the West, I think rightly so, there's an emphasis on natural law, on understanding the way things are. Uh, in the East, there is that too. Uh, some of us don't seem to realize, but it's there. Uh, but there's also this emphasis on impermanence and uh, on just this radical uh, temporality of everything, everything created, I should say, uh, because it does not apply to God, uh, it does not apply to things that are eternal. Um, but all of our hopes and aspirations, our friendships, our ideas, uh, these things are mortal, just like us. And that's part of the reality, in fact, that we need to to grapple with and accept as part of nature. It's it's a tragic part of it. It's not. Oh, it's I, actually more rightly, it's it's anti natural. It's something introduced uh, due to the fall, um, but it's real and it's something that we we grapple with every day. You know, um, Hebrews says that it's through the fear of death that the devil keeps us in bondage. Right. Um, a lot of people might read that today, especially in our comfortable first world setting, and think, "Ah, eh, you know," or maybe before this year, think, "Ah, eh, you know, I don't, I'm not really that afraid of death." What you know, we're distracted. We got all kinds of other things going for us. Life is good, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, but 
in fact, we face death all the time, and and all the more this year with this pandemic, uh, which has has been a very stark reminder of that reality. Um, but even beforehand, you know, like I said, we have we have thoughts, we have aspirations, we have dreams, we have friendships, we have relationships, and and none of these things are permanent. Um, you know, in my own case, my my parents were divorced. You know, there's uh, just there's all sorts of things. Uh, my my father passed away three years ago, actually now um, uh, after this, we republished this book. But you know, there are things that having this constant practice, this memento mori, is the the Latin phrase, the remembrance of death, uh, is incredibly spiritually beneficial. And so, what I found in this book uh, was someone who took that and put it at the core of his view of the world. You know, it wasn't, it was not only a personal, uh, spiritual practice, help, uh, but a lens through which he could actually understand um, all of the, the crises and tragedy around us. There's, there's a great moment in the foreword where, where Malik San Habib uh, writes uh, about how his father always had two books with him, and one was his King James Bible and the other was his journal. Yes. And it was a constant sort of relationship of integration of faith and experience. And, and that sort of elliptical nature that you're getting at is something that comes through in the style of the writing. It's an unusual book. It is. It in, is. In many ways. And, and he, he talks about it, about it this way in Christ in Crisis itself. He says, quote, not a word, not a comma written in this book was conceived in the abstraction of thought. Always the totality of the human personal experience was at stake in the crucible of the judgment of Christ. He understands nothing of the life of the Christian who thinks that it is a question of ideas. And one wonders if the theologians who are perpetually engaged in systematic balancing of ideas really know what it is about. So this is, this is reflected not just in the, in, the, in the theological content, but in the form itself. Perhaps, perhaps the best place to turn to now is, is, is Malik's definition of crisis. Yes. Yes. So he, he talks, he drives it from the Greek, uh, and he's not, he's not wrong about it. It comes from the Greek word for judgment, uh, uh, krinin. Um, uh, he says it means to separate, to winnow, therefore to distinguish and discriminate, therefore to judge. Um, and so for him, every crisis in the world has, uh, the Christ is, somewhere to be found there, and hence the title, Christ in Crisis, that Christ is the Lord and he is judging. And when we see divisions and separations and uh, strife, uh, we need to look beyond it to Christ. And I, I think that's that's a recurring theme throughout all the chapters, which are kind of somewhat independent essays uh, throughout the entire book, that um, in the midst of all of these very real things, and he gets into, you know, there's a military crisis and a economic crisis and political and scientific and technological and religious and so on and so forth, in the midst of all these things, if we're not looking for Christ and seeing him, we're missing something. Uh, we're missing the most important thing, in fact. And uh, I actually think that's one of the things that strikes me about this. Uh, there's a chapter four is the gospel and the life of the spirit. And in it, he kind of gets into his methodology um, 
as much as there is one. As you mentioned, it's a very uh, peculiar style of writing. Uh, But in section two, he says there are three fundamental questions arise. What is this new thing that's being born? So here again, we see that impermanence, the time of transition. Again, I think very applicable to today. Um, So that's number one. What is this new thing that's being born? So let's, let's understand what's happening in the world today. But number two is where is Christ in it? And number three, what is our role? both severally and collectively, in its self-formation. And I think today the academic temptation is to answer number one and say, there we go. Good job, right? What's going on? Here's my analysis. Here's my explanation. Uh, you know, please thank me, <laughs> right? Yeah. right? Look, look what I've done. I've contributed. Um, if we f- move a little bit away from the academy, you know, to policymakers, politicians, uh, they tend to jump to number three, right? Maybe they'll do number one as well, although usually – Um, maybe a little sloppily, Uh, but then they go to number three and they say, well, here's what we need to do, right? But everybody's skipping number two. And number two is the most important thing, which is where is Christ in everything that's happening? Uh, And and I love that that is so central and it's on every page uh, of this book uh, to Malik that uh, the gospel and the cross are are at the center uh, of his entire perspective and analysis. Um, And and again, that's something, you know, he wrote these words about... um, you know, in, in criticism of theologians and people who are engaged in a balancing of ideas. But that was him. Like, in some ways, he's talking to himself, right? He wrote a book uh, called The Wonder of Being, <laughs> right? Like, he, this is, this is a, a legit philosopher uh, who wrote these things. Um, but he's, he's being very self-critical and, and, and uh, offers this very refreshing take. This is something that is at once— intelligent and informed, but also incredibly accessible, I found. Um, and, and I think uh, some of its readers have, have found that as well, from, from what I've understood. So, so to elliptic, to, to take our conversation elliptically in a Malik sort of way, okay. you mentioned this critique. There's also a curious point in this book where he talks about two sort of figures that have dominated sort of his approach. And he talks about St. Thomas Aquinas, the consummate uh, uh, synthesizer and systematizer. And he also talks about Kierkegaard. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, and I – again, I think you can see both those things. Interesting what he mentions, what he dwells on the most about Aquinas is uh, the story uh, that at some point – we're not sure the nature of it, but – uh, at the end, toward the end of uh, Thomas Aquinas's life, uh, he had some kind of vision, uh, and he and he said to his friend, "You know, all that I've done is straw, right?" And he he looked at his massive volumes of work, uh, amazing work, which which uh, Malik himself is said, you know, we're so so fortunate that he had this vision after he produced it all, right, <laughs> so that we can benefit from it. Um, but he looked at it all and he said, "There's something greater than all of this." That that you know. There, there's something just unimaginably better. Um, and then Kierkegaard is fascinating, of course. He was uh, he was constantly at odds with uh, people who claimed to be Christians but did not really live any differently than anybody else. For Kierkegaard, it was something that had to be a whole life engagement. It had to to change your perspective entirely. Um, I think Kierkegaard is sometimes a bit too harsh uh, on, the, on the church in general because of that. Um, but, but there's something very true to that as well, that, you know, if we really believe things that Christ says, you know, uh, 
Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all the other things you worry about shall be added to you. That is a life-changing statement, if we really believe it. That is something that should shape the way we think and live and relate to one another. Uh, and it should it should be kind of visible, right? Like, it, it's not something that you can just say, oh, you know, uh, Dylan, he's he's just kind of like everybody else. Oh, yeah, he happens to be a Christian, right? You know, I hope, I, I don't think I always do a great job, but I hope that when people think of me, they think, oh, there's something at least a little different <laughs> about him. And it's because it's because he's my my weird religious friend, right? Um, and, and I think... I think, again, you see that in Malik, that that existential side to the faith is so important to him that you can't just stop with ideas. Ideas are important, and they're important to Malik, uh, but you can't just stop there and say, you know, job done, because people are are living their lives, uh, very real lives, and there's all kinds of people that don't have any time for great ideas. They need to know about life right now, um, and that's that's something that again, is, is I th- just pervades this book. To bring this back to the existential, Malik yeah. makes these turns in both style and presentation in this book to really draw the author in um, the application of this crisis. You know, he, sa- he says earlier, he talks about uh, the, the things in this book that what is affirmed is that at its deepest levels, the crisis is caused by Christ in the half dozen different senses of the term cause, <laughs> right. calling us back to Aquinas. Right, right. Now, now then, he, then he, he, he hits the reader with this. Are you perplexed? Do you feel the crisis? Do you feel something profoundly wrong, both in your life and in the affairs of the world? Do you, as it were, hold your heart in your hand, fearing that almost the next moment something terrible is going to break out? both in you and in the world. Mm. And there is throughout this a call that every crisis in the world demands our participation in understanding it, that it's not enough to analyze with an abstract sense this is not only a problem for the world, but it's a problem for you, mm-hmm. um, and it's a problem in both senses that 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 Christ is is uh, is the only answer to. Mm. Um, it's just it's it's a very he talks about, and, and it, this is just this is just such a quotable book. If such is the state of your mind, both with respect to yourself and to the world then what these meditations are suggesting is that if you turn with all your heart to Jesus Christ, it is more certain than any mathematical proof that he will show you, and not only why the perplexity and the crisis and the wrong and the flaw and the awful uncertainty of the moment, but how to overcome Hmm. in him all the havoc of the devil. So he goes through some of the leading crises of his time with this framework. What are some of those that he delves into? So he talks very much about, you know, the Cold War. I mean, again, this is 1962, um, before the Vietnam War, at least the U.S. involvement, um, uh, but still very much uh, in the midst of, of this overarching paradigm uh, that was 
all throughout the mid-20th century of there is a free world and there is the communist world, the Soviet world. Um, and, and he was in the middle of that. Again, he was, he was at the UN. Um, there's a, a great book uh, compiled by his son uh, on his work um, on the Universal Declaration. Some of the deliberations are fascinating. Um, you have people from the West who kind of should know better sort of falling for some of the Soviet rhetoric. You know, the re- you know, they say, oh, yes, you know, we should care about individual rights, but we also need to care about, you know, corporate community rights. And, you know, Malik sees through that as they're saying all of the individual rights are completely expendable if there is this greater good of, of the nation or the cause or the party that they can appeal to. And he had none of it. Like his, his speeches are great. Um, and... Uh, you know, there's 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 this clarity to that, this unwillingness to sacrifice the individual in the analysis. That again, that that personal character. Uh, he even mentions Martin Buber at one point. You got to have this I and thou that you don't look into the world as this object for analysis uh, that's out there, right? It's not out there. You are part of it. Uh, you know, we we've seen. Uh, you know, people, when we hear about people, you know, with coronavirus dying in hospitals, those are not statistics. You know, Stalin was wrong, right? You know, that, that statement of, you know, one person dying is a tragedy, uh, a thousand dying is a statistic. No, that's a thousand people dying, people you could have a relationship with. And some of them maybe you did. Um, people that, that the world needed, people that were valuable to God because he created them. Um, every single person in the world. Again, you know, this summer and and even to the present, we've had demonstrations, uh, you know, with regarding race relations in the country, um, police culture, all sorts of different perspectives on that. I'm not in any way an expert uh, on those issues, but it's a mistake, I think, to look at it and say, okay, what side am I on? Or what, you know, how... How do we really understand this in such a way that you're not looking and seeing, you know, the grief that brings people to the streets or the the confusion that that leads to a place where police don't know how to respond to a crisis, right? You know, there, there's there's all kinds of factors that that feed into uh, the discussion going on that I think taking on Malik's perspective. Uh, just gives us a different way of engaging it where, where we don't have to decide. You don't have to view everything through a partisan lens. We don't have to view everything through an intellectual construct. We ask ourselves about the people first and about ourselves first and about, you know, what, what am I doing? What, how, do, how do I respond to this? How do I respond to this before God, you know, on my knees? You know, uh, how do I see Christ as Lord over all of this? When I see strife and unrest, uh, do I have any faith that something good can come of this? Um, that's hard to see. That's hard to see in the moment. It's hard to see, you know, here in Grand Rapids, we even had riots. And and I've lived here my whole life. And a lot of people, I remember, you know, all over social media saying, you know, I never thought this would happen here, like in Grand Rapids. Like, really? You know, but it did. Um, and it the things that people think are far away, the crises that we think are something to sit back and out al- and analyze, maybe as close as your next door neighbor, maybe as close as your own heart. Uh, 
Um, and and this is a book that I think really turns me on to that perspective. So I'm sorry, I got there from the Cold War somehow, but uh, uh, but there's there's something about that that. And in one sense, you look at this book and it's incredibly dated, right? He's writing at a time that, you know, the Berlin Wall has fallen, thank God. Uh, the Soviet Union has been done away with. But we we still have crises. And the book is about crises. Furthermore, we still actually have communism. And uh, we've seen very recently, uh, unfortunately, the, the assault on freedom and democracy in Hong Kong at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. We've uh, seen in Russia, I, I don't think this is a move towards communism, but a move towards at least some a closer step towards totalitarianism with uh, Putin being elected president for life this summer, appoint, appointed president for life. So no more no more presidential elections in Russia. That's, that's the reality we are living in as of July. Um, there are things that even when I went through the work to, to republish this book, I thought, oh, you know, that's that's interesting and we can jump through a few hoops to apply it to our time that now, today, it's a lot easier, unfortunately, <laughs> a lot easier to to read the book and see, wow, this this really does apply to our world today. A lot of Malik's discussion of communism is broadly applicable to any sort of materialist ideology. Absolutely. Um, he, he writes, uh, communists love to confine you within the round of ideas. But the historic struggle in which we are engaged today is primarily moral, personal, and spiritual. And to miss or minimize that dimension of the struggle is already to have been vanquished by those that believe the moral, personal, and spiritual is nothing but a secretion of matter and economics. There is a lot of economic determinism mm -hmm. and contemporary sort of neo-Marxist narratives of decline and late capitalism and that sort of thing. So all, all of this is still intensely relevant. I would even add um, Sergei Bulgakov, uh, another Orthodox writer, a somewhat eccentric theologian from the, the 20th century. Uh, at one point, he was an economist uh, who he was actually a Marxist economist who had a conversion back to Russian Orthodoxy, uh, and then he fled to Paris uh, in response to the revolution, or actually I think he was expelled. Um, he was uh, exiled. But he wrote that all economists are Marxists, even those who hate Marxism. And his point being not that like Marx was somehow right or something like that, um, but rather that, that even when the person themselves might not actually be a materialist, Sometimes they get so caught up in their discipline's mode of analysis that they're really accepting all the terms of the enemy. It's kind of how, how Malik puts it, right? That, you know, it's not that economics doesn't matter. It's very clear that it does matter to Malik. He talks about how economists, in fact, have a unique vocation and competence that, that it is an error for other people to step on that terrain. It's almost like a you know, sphere sovereignty sort of argument that there's a sphere that only the economists can can be responsible for. And yet, if we just fall into debates about GDP and about, uh, you know, regulations, you know, all, all, I mean, all the stuff that matters, right? But if we if we just get into those weeds and we forget that there's something greater, We've we've almost lost before we've begun to fight, right? That that there's there's for Malik something inseparable between the freedoms we enjoy in 
you know, the Western world, or you can see very broadly in Western civilization, and the spiritual core that gave birth to that. And these things can't be separated. In fact, when you separate them, you have, in some sense, already lost. This notion of competence is one that comes up again and again. And I think you're right to relate it to that notion of sort of sphere sovereignty. Um, and there's... Um, there's an extended discussion on this in the role of the church. Yes. And Malik, Malik sees a vibrant role for the church and society within its competence, but is very wary of the church interceding in public life beyond its competence. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's, it's something I think it's really hard to walk the line on today. There's... I think from the right and the left, you have people saying, oh, you know, the church shouldn't be political, uh, but they kind of speak out of both sides of their mouth, right? Shouldn't be political, oh, except for those issues that I think are important, because those aren't really political issues, you know? Um, and so it's really hard. It's a hard message to say and be believable, I think. Um, but I do think it's an important one, that the church has a calling of moral guidance, which does, in fact, have a social and even political uh side to it, or at least it has implications for that. But it is a mistake for the church, no matter what your political perspective, what, what your partisan view, whatever, the, you know, all, you know, left or right or none or whatever, um, it is a mistake for the church to invest so much in political advocacy, um, even, even for the right causes, if it is at the expense of its core raison d'etre, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is about the salvation of souls. If people do not have a place to go, a place that transcends these crises in our world, a place where we have contact with that one thing, that one source of real permanence and comfort, uh, you know, Christ and his salvation, uh, you know, the, the victory of the cross— then what is the church doing? You know, why why even have a church? You could just find a great NGO, right? You know, um, of whatever, again, whatever your cause may be, there's all kinds of them out there. And frankly, a lot of them are probably a lot more effective at their causes than church bodies um, because that's not the church's ultimate vocation. Um, I don't think the church should just stand by and say nothing, but I think the church should strive to say something transcendent when it speaks at all. And I, I think that that's something that's always a trap um, for religious leaders. It's it's hard when you have diverse congregations to, to feel like you're doing enough for everyone. And I think sometimes people give into the pressure and say, okay, we've got to say something. And instead of saying something that is uh, unique and giving a glimpse of the beauty of the gospel that the world otherwise would not have. Instead, the church is just repeating the slogans and memes of any given political movement out there and, you know, maybe peppering it with a few proof texts or something like that from the Bible, but not really adding much, you know, not, not adding something that challenges people, no matter what their perspective, uh, to look at the spiritual side of our crises and to, to look at themselves before God. Uh, and I think that, that that's what frustrated Malik. He, he was frustrated with those who think, you know, church leaders who think that 
you know, the fate of economies and politics rest upon them. Uh, his point is it doesn't. That's not your job, right? Uh, and that's okay. They have a, the most important job. Um, and, and the frustration is that they, they think they aren't doing something important if they're not somehow stepping outside of their comp- competence. And I, I think that uh, that's something that absolutely is still with us today. What, what, is in, what was fascinating in rereading this book, and I've reread it now a couple times. You lent it to me when you first, when yeah. you first got it to the library, and then we, we, were, we were excited about it. And um, He talks about competencies in a couple of different categories, but when he gets to the church— he talks about there are some universal obligations there for all people to pray, mm-hmm. to bring meaning to the social crisis of our time. And Malik, Malik says, um, points at one point as, as the model of the Lord's Prayer for this sort of behavior. He says, when we pray as our Lord taught us, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The meaning can never be that just because there is perfect peace in heaven. God's will is that there be, should be perfect peace on earth under any condition. Mm. The church has a responsibility to sort of give meaning mm. to our lives. And we have, have obligations as individual believers to sort of view the crises, the temptations, the things in this world, good and bad and to understand that at the feet of the cross somehow mm-hmm. and to bring us back to that. And that is an amazingly powerful and very countercultural message Absolutely. to anyone from any, any political perspective. Absolutely. I think one of the things that strikes me about this book throughout and even on my first reading was how willingly he's able to just wear his faith on his sleeve um, you know, you can find religious academics today, right, um, who who will say, oh, I'm a Christian, this is my perspective, whatever. You don't find a lot of even them talking about the devil, <laughs> right? Yes. You know, and like this is something that like is part of historic Christianity. We think, you know, there are forces of evil uh, at work. Uh, doesn't bother Malik at all to talk about that. You know, this is something that that he just puts his faith first and he he models what he's trying to teach uh and it's it's very difficult to do but i think so refreshing to see somebody try um and i think it's it's to me inspiring to try to do that myself in my own work but also just in my own life in my own prayer um i mean you know like all, a lot of people i've been sitting mostly at home for the last five months now, um, watching what's going on in the world, usually through social media, which is not the best filter. Um, and on the one hand, I think people can feel more aware, more affected by a lot of these things because we've come to live our entire lives vicariously through the, the, the weird windows of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Um, on the other hand, I've become far more aware, at least not that I wasn't already, but far more aware of the more immediate crises. So, you know, the current crises in my household are uh, potty training a toddler, <laughs> right? Um, you know, I, I got a, a newborn as well. I have four kids, uh, one born in, in May. Um, just finding 
time to feel like I've accomplished anything <laughs> any given day uh, is is an ongoing struggle. And if I view it again in this in the purely material terms, if I only look at what's in front of me and I'm not looking for Christ in the midst of all of that, whew, you know, I, I don't I mean, there's there's people, there's relationships that have not made it through this pandemic, right? Because some people have discovered that their relationship worked when they were able to get out of the house 40 hours a week and get away from the other the other people. Uh, and that's, that's, to some extent, very human and normal, right? Um, and we're living in a very abnormal state of being right now uh, and way of life right now. But on the other hand, it reveals something uh, about uh, whether what they had uh, was as permanent as they thought. Um, and... And I'm not. I don't want to fault anybody in those situations. They're very hard situations. I don't want to uh, judge from the outside. I think that'd be against the character of even the book we're discussing. But, but I will say, for my own part, um, this is paradoxically, you know, while we've been in many ways separated from even our own church bodies and having to do like Zoom church and all of that. Um, thankfully, ours has reopened uh, with some good precautions, and we've been able to go a few times, but. Um, has definitely brought my faith to be something, you know, once again, you know, s- seeing how, how important it is, how what an anchor it is for the rest of my life. Um, and so, you know, at the time I discovered or rediscovered this book, uh, I had something of a glimpse of that. Um, and now in a very, very different way, I'm experiencing that again, uh, that, you know, we look around and we see, we don't know, when, when will there be a cure or a vaccine? Maybe soon, maybe never. We, you know, when what's going to happen to universities that suddenly have far fewer students and they can't have their international students? Which, you know, from an economic perspective, they they need the the extra money that comes from that. There's a lot that aren't going to make it. Uh, there's there's whole industries already uh, that have nearly failed, or in some cases have failed. At the same time, there's other new things. Um, I would bet that any of our listeners right now. Uh, six months ago had never done a Zoom call, and now they are probably sick of them. <laughs> They've probably done so many. Um, I, we even did one this morning. It was, it was a wonderful Zoom call for Acton. Uh, but it's, it's the sort of thing that uh, there's a whole industry that's now rising up uh, as just a response to the change. That's, that's how markets work. Um, but as, as, as Malik repeats over and over again, um, in that same chapter four, that there's there's something new and as yet undetermined uh, is is being born from from what is passing away, and that's true in all of our lives, but just so pointedly true this year. I think that uh, a lot of people are confused and frustrated and upset, and a big part of that confusion, I think, is just the uncertainty. You know, there, there's realities, there's uh, frustration over restrictions, over injustice, all this sort of thing, but there's also just this profound awareness that we have no idea what comes next. And very few of us want to just sit with that. That's something that if you don't have this foundation in something transcendent, in a real faith in, as a Christian in, in Jesus Christ, uh, it's very hard to just sit with that and weather that. Um, 
And I think, you know, we've, again, in a, in a very real way, we can see then all the the increases in mental health crises in the midst of this and suicide hotline calls and things like that. I mean, there's real statistics to back this up that this is hard for people. This is like part of it's just being home. It's doing less. But part of it's also nobody nobody really knows where we're going right now. We have inklings. We have thoughts. Uh, we have some people with some real insight. And I think we should look to all of those things and try to understand it. But we also need to be prepared that who know, you know nobody expected a pandemic a year ago. And it just happened, and it is the only thing, right? It is, it is the the thing that through which we have to define our reality now. There might be something tomorrow that is equally impactful that none of us can predict or foresee. Um, that is the world we have always been living in, but it's just been revealed to us so pointedly this year. And I think for a lot of people, that's bringing them face to face with, you know, this impermanence, this mortality, and. And it's something that it's – if you don't have that faith, if you don't have Christ to hold you up, uh, what do you have to stand on? Dylan, thank you so much for being with us. Um, thank you for your work bringing to this book. To give people a, a, one, more, one more taste of Malik before we go, I wanted to read uh, Malik's inter- our, uh, dedication. Mm which I think um, shows this relationship beautifully. He says, uh, To the loving memory of my grandmother, who first taught me with tears the everlasting faith. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can reach our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actonline, I'm Eric Cohn.